Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey everyone, welcome to Who's Your Data podcast. In this episode, we talk to Farah Ashiro Jitubo, co-founder and CEO of Okra, a Nigerian financial tech startup whose mission is to digitize financial services in Africa and connect a billion Africans to the global economy. We discuss what it means to build Africa's financial data network, the social consequences like building and strengthening a middle class. We discuss how they think about the financial data they collect and use it for anything from personalization of services to fraud detection, all while maintaining privacy and security for their customers. We also touch on Farah's experience as a black female tech startup founder and hear her one word of advice for anyone embarking on the path of entrepreneurship. Okay, ready? Let's get to the conversation. Farah, hi, and thank you for joining the Who's Your Data podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to talk to you about the company that you founded, Okra, that is building open finance infrastructure in, in Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself founding a fintech startup in Nigeria? Sure. So I'm Nigerian. Uh, I was born in Nigeria, uh, but I grew up in the States. And um, after school, I um, went on to like, kind of work at big, big corporate companies. So uh, I've been coding since I was a kid, like probably like 10 years old. Uh, and I've been building like, you know, websites and different little applications and always trying to, trying to solve my own personal problems. And I went on to um, study computer science. And afterwards I worked at JP Morgan. I worked at Fidelity Investments, but then I really wanted to kind of uh, work for startups and like work on like really cool projects and really cool technologies. A lot of my friends were like kind of building in. And so I started working at different startups. And then I started working at startups that were solving problems in different parts of the world. And that really got really exciting to me. Like the understanding of, you know, localizing ideas for different markets, thinking that you can do one thing, but maybe it doesn't work somewhere else because of, you know, X, Y, Z. I moved back to Nigeria in 2014. And then I, well, I actually came to visit funny enough. And then it kind of turns into moving back because when I visited, I realized that like, wow, there's so much opportunity, so many things to build, like so many of the coolest apps, the things that you, you're used to using, they don't even exist here today. Right. Um, and But I understood these kind of ideas, but I also understood Nigeria, I understood the context. So I kind of understood also how to like kind of localize those things. Yeah, in the that's context. a really great sweet spot. Yeah, exactly. As I So as I grew, I thought, okay, you know, in the beginning, of course, you make mistakes because you're coming from the U.S. and everything that works there doesn't work here, like as a copy and paste. But as you start mm-hmm. to understand, like kind of how to localize that, started to just build really cool things. And I think the idea from Okra really started from wanting to build a lot of things and not thinking the rails and the infrastructure to do that existed. Okra is building open finance infrastructure in, in Africa. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Uh, at Okra, essentially, we're on a mission to digitize financial services in Africa. Uh, and what we believe is that, you know, our mission is to uh, connect a billion Africans to the global economy. We feel like our customers don't even really exist yet today because how far, you know, financial services can go, like the, you know, the opportunity to, for Africa to, to compete in the fourth industrial revolution is intrinsically tied to, you know, the infrastructure that we're building. Uh, and we, you know, we're essentially on a mission to build Africa's unified banking API, you know, across the continent, essentially enabling financial services apps, uh, enabling connections into the global economy as well. So you're, you're, you're enabling personalized digital services for customers in, in, a, in a continent that basically has the largest number of unbanked people, right? You know, uh, when I moved back to Nigeria in 2014, like I, I moved in with my parents because like when you think about like having to, you know, rent 
at a place or a house or apartment, you're paying your rent all up front. You know, when you see people driving around in cars, it's because they bought that entire car uh, in cash. Uh, and that's really because, you know, we didn't have, you know, the information to, you know, have a credit history, to have, you know, to credit worthiness, to understand someone's not just ability, but also willingness to pay, but also um, in order to give access to credit and, um, and plans for uh, the working class as well. And so essentially what, what we're trying to do is democratize that access. So like build that bridge that actually enables that. So now, you know, rather than having to pay my entire rent up front, I can pay it in monthly installments. I can buy a car, pay, you know, and pay my uh, car note, or I can even, you know, transfer money easily to my friends and family, like regardless of you know what you're trying to do within that financial space, we can actually enable you to do that. Okay. I see. So, and that actually comes into my next question as far as who are Okra's customers and what different types of services do you offer? Uh, so our clients and our customers are, you know, any any business that wants to, you know, digitally transform, any business that wants to serve their customers uh, digitally. And what I mean by that is that we kind of see our, we kind of see ourselves enabling you to to create that financial journey. So whether or not you're trying to onboard your customer, we have customer, um, we have products like identity uh, to like enable you have like a KYC or KYB of your customer quickly onboard them, uh, whether or not you want to like assess credit worthiness or risk or whether you want to, you know, build personalized services. We give you access to like real-time data, like their transactional history, their balance statements, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, lastly, if, if you want to, you know, get paid or send money, we give you access to bank to bank payments as well. So, uh, we kind of see ourselves as kind of like completing that full circle. Oh, and then you also asked about customers as well, like like who they are. You yes. see yourself serving customers, sit like um, a lending company that wants to, you know, borrow money or, or you want, you know, or, or a digital bank that, you know, wants you to be able to, you know, uh, consolidate your bank accounts and send money to your friends uh, or even, you know, a food um, delivery company that you just want to pay and, you know, get your order, your food and have it delivered. Uh, it's, it's essentially all companies that, you know, need to reach their customers digitally. And we also even work with the, the banks as well, uh, because even when it comes to, you know, a, a bank, they also, you know, know that the ways to, the new ways to scale is not opening up more branches and physical branches is really just, get, you know, giving your customers uh, access to more personalized, you know, solutions that they want within, you know, within your application as well. And then give them access to the data to help them do that. From a data and a tech perspective, Africa is really growing. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what uh, opportunities there are and maybe some risks as far as privacy, security? So just to kind of go back to that, the whole Web 2.0, it's you know, when you look at, you know, what uh, Africa was doing at the time or Nigeria specifically was doing at that time, you know, we were building the telco, the telecommunication, you know, rails. So like, you know, we went directly to, you know, uh, to mobile, to, to mobile web. So you had more of like the app generation uh, coming on board. Uh, but now when it comes to like the fourth industrial revolution, that's not something you can skip. You can't, you know, you can, we, may, we may have been able to skip Web 2.0, but when it comes to, to data and personalization, the only way you can do that is actually being able to, you know, get that data and start understanding it and start, you know, learning it. But then of course, with that comes like privacy concerns and, and risk and so on and so forth. So you know, we make sure that we ride on customer consent in every given time. So our relationship is really with that end user, that person that wants access uh, to this loan, that person that wants, you know, to be able to, you know, send money easily. And uh, we make sure that, you know, you're only giving consent to what you want to share uh, with this third party or with, the, you know, your favorite financial app. So how do you think about data in this context? Because it sounds like you have a lot of data that you can collect or probably would want to collect. And where do you see the use of this data going? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that in the beginning you kind of are trying to solve a particular problem and you're collecting no data to do that. Uh, but then as you grow, you can start to build connections between the things that you're seeing uh, and you, you start to see, you know, oh, I can, you know, what would happen if we had access to this or that? And even your customers get, you know, really cool ideas of what their end users have asked for. And, uh, and then you start to build these different correlations. So for us, the reason, like for, I always make the, the example, I always give the example about Netflix, you know, net, like Netflix didn't grow simply because they had the catalog. They also grew because they can tell you what you want to watch next, right? Mm-hmm. It's that recommendation engine. It's the fact that they took data very seriously from the beginning. And so that's what we actually did at Okra as well. We made sure that the data uh, that we had, uh, we didn't just sit on it. We understood it and we learned it, you know, as we grew so that we could give, you know, clients access to things like, you know, income, uh, revenue, uh, spending patterns, you know, and things like this so that as you're, you know, using your favorite uh, wealth management application, they can uh, use your spending patterns to give you recommendations on, you know, portfolio companies that you should invest in rather than just going based on what you think rather than uh, actually using real data to solve the problem. Interesting. And I would imagine that as far as collecting that kind of data, you also are exposed to behavioral patterns that are specific or typical or representative of the continent in Nigeria. Can you talk a little bit about, is there, I guess my question is, are there behaviors that you can glean from the data that dictate certain types of actions that you might take in terms of security, in terms of possible fraud? Are there things like that that come up in the data that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, we you start to understand like not being able to just have access to data, but also be able to validate that data, right? So if you have someone uh, that has been able to assume multiple identities, for instance, right? And they have multiple different, you know, identity um, identities across your system. If you're actually taking the time to understand this and learn this and understand patterns, you can start building these correlations and say, okay, this is a, you know, this is a suspicious character. This is what a suspicious pattern looks like. This is what it looks like when someone, you know, is floating their account and they're adding, you know, they're adding this much money to their account and then they're moving it. Um, and then also, as you build, you know, more more of a data network, you're able to build correlations between transactional graphs and how people interact. And then you're able to then, based on that, even enhance your products uh, for your customers. So you know that, okay, uh, not only are you doing this payment, but we're making sure that it's uh, it's a safe payment. We can give you, we can warn you and say, you know, are you sure you want to transact? And do you know this person that you're transacting with and so on? We've, we've started to look at things from how do you make sure that you know what someone's true identity is and, and you know you can actually onboard them you can verify this person is who they say they are and they're not you know they don't have multiple identities to all the way to how to understand you know different fraud patterns to make sure that like people are not taking advantage of systems how are you finding or do you anticipate any difficulties in getting people to buy into this technology and these services in terms of is there awareness around data and privacy and that balance in the population? Or do you need to convince them or to inform them about it? That's a great question. I think that, you know, we, we launched January 2020. And when we launched, it was very much uh, just proving, proving the concept to people. And it's one of those things that you're not actually proving something because when you go to a lending company that, you know, historically had to give decisions within three to seven days because someone had to physically go to their branch, get, you know, their bank statement, print out every single page, take them in, and then someone has to physically look and audit these documents. Uh, when you're explaining to them that that now could be, you know, done in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatnot at mm-hmm. the time, it's compelling but then, you know, it, it starts to be, does it work? Right. Uh, but then when you now actually build that out and you can say that it works, then I think that uh, another thing that was really helpful for us and also 
an unexpected way was, you know, uh, the pandemic. Because when you think about that, what you had was that people that were used to being able to do things physically were now in their homes. Digital transformation became the number one conversation in every boardroom, right? It became, you know, now that our customers are at home, how can we serve them digitally? We need to continue to give these loans or we need to continue to provide them services and financial services and digital services. But now how do we do that if we are a physical branch or if we hadn't built that, you know, those rails? And so I think then we saw this kind of explosion or influx in in clients um, onboarding their customers and then starting to actually uh, and then what was really exciting is that once they understood this data and understood what they can do is now watching them grow. They come on board with their current user base, but then now they have access to customers in places that they didn't have, they couldn't before because their places outside the physical reach of, um, you know, of these people that needed these services. Uh, and so it then goes, how do we, how do we scale that? So, and, and when it comes to like privacy, of course, you know, privacy is definitely like a two-way street. So it's the privacy and concerns of like, how do you make sure the end user trusts you? And how do you make sure also you know, your client trusts you. So, so how do you make sure if, as people are using um, uh, their applications and they see Okra, they trust uh, you enough to provide their details to you in order for you to, you know, give them access to their, whatever service that they're using. And uh, what we had to make sure is that one, we always uh, wrote on end user consent. You know, there's a GDPR in the U.S., but we have something similar, the NDPR, making sure that, you know, we rely on end user consent and making sure that they understand uh, what's happening in every step of the way. Uh, we also make sure from a client perspective that they also know that we are, you know, we have our ISO certifications. We hold to the highest level of privacy and security uh, standards, et cetera, as well. And so with that, I think you start to build that trust among end users that use you. Just side note, but do you think that with the pandemic that also affected sort of the web infrastructure and priorities to get that up to speed or... Was it still mostly mobile? No, I think, I mean, web has exploded now because we're post-telecom now. We have, you know, the internet, there's more internet penetration. There's more people online generally. But I think that what it did explode was how many people were building uh, so many cool financial um, products, fintech products, you know, consumer products, et cetera. So, you know, you saw this like immense amount of like funding coming onto the continent. You saw, you know, so many people building, you know, the uh, digital banks, um, building, you know, uh, wealth management applications, building buy now and pay later, et cetera. Uh, And because of that, you you find yourself uh, growing a client base with across multiple different use cases and being able to kind of also make sure that from you're also growing uh, from a business aspect in terms of even like coverage and stability just based on that. It sounds like you're really trying to sort of revolutionize credit and the financial reality in Nigeria. And, and I thought it was interesting that you're, you're headquartered in Lagos as well, right? Is there an advantage or a disadvantage to being headquartered in Lagos rather than one of the tech power hubs such as the Bay Area or New York City? You know, for us, it, it just makes sense because like you know Lagos is Nigeria is where we are we're powering people in Nigeria and there's a lot of local understanding that's needed to kind of build this out uh and also you know just even working with um the people that you're working with it's just understanding and being able to do research research and understanding is you know is really uh is really important here I think that the only thing that you would see is for us because we're, we're remote that's enabled us to be able to not just serve clients everywhere but also from even a uh team perspective, you know, we are 80% in Nigeria, but then we also have a members of a team outside uh, Nigeria as well. And I think that it's really just exciting the amount of impact that we're able to, to have um, day-to-day on people's lives. I think that I, I'm trying to think of any con um, to that. I mean, I guess, I think for us, it's been, it's just been, you know, a lot of pros. Really interesting. And 
Can you talk a little bit about any challenges that you may have had uh, bringing Okra to life, specifically as a Black female founder in fintech? And would you have any advice for other women that are trying to get into innovation? You know, I always say that, like, what's really important is, like, representation, um, like, just the idea of, like, being able to see yourself somewhere else. So I think I was, a, I've, I've been kind of lucky to have a lot of amazing, like, Black women and, and women generally as uh, mentors as I've grown in terms of, like, uh, engineering for me specifically. But I think that, of course, generally speaking, I think as a founder, you're going to face challenges when you want to fundraise and when you want to bring sure. you have to have a certain number, a certain level of conviction about what whatever it is that you're doing, because you'll hear a lot of no's. And so you're going to have to quickly grow uh, thick skin. But I think that our approach generally, so like myself, my co-founder, our approach generally different because we understood that like every investor is not a good fit. And, and what I mean by that is That's that a lot point. of people, yeah, you know, a lot of people feel like um, this person didn't want me, but you should also want your investor as well, right? Like it's a, it's a two-way street. You have to make sure their ideas align with you as well. Like your, you know, your, uh, your ideas and the way you think align with you. And I think that when you, you do that, you'll realize that sometimes even a rejection of maybe wasn't meant to be, right? But you can keep forging ahead and know that, you know, one is coming. So I think that resilience is something that and would be the biggest, you know, um, advice that I give uh, mm-hmm. female founders um, and just founders in general is just, you may get a rejection and it may be because you're a woman, maybe because someone doesn't believe in your idea, and but you have to make, come from a perspective and not let those no re- those no's register as rejection because you're going to also have to say no to investors as well, you know? Right. I, that's a really good point. It's uh, you're interviewing them just as much as they're interviewing you. And if exactly. they're saying no, then they're probably not a good fit for you exactly. down the line. I have to say, uh, from my limited experience, when I worked at an early stage fashion tech startup and they would not say no to investors, but that meant that their vision had to get compromised because every time investors wanted some changes or the app to go in a different direction, they would just kind of swerve in that direction and end up not being yep. anything at all. So exactly. you do, I agree with you. You have to have conviction. You have to believe in your, in yep. your product. And if, uh, if they don't want to invest in it, they're not the right ones to. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think female investors also means more female entrepreneurs as well. So I think that representation matters on both sides of the coins, you know, just like, you know, female founder and and also investment companies to have, you know, female representation as well. What are you excited for in the coming year? What, how is Okra growing and what's, what, what are you looking forward to moving forward? Uh, I think what's really exciting is that um, one thing is like our payment side uh, is really exciting. So because of that data, data science, like we've, we've always always looked at data on our core um, data side, but now we're actually looking at that on our payment side. Like, so earlier as we were talking about like risk and fraud uh, and so on. And so with that, for the first time, like we're, since we initially had, we grew our data science team, we're actually growing that even bigger. So that's really exciting. Uh, we're generally growing our team generally. So if, you know, we're always looking for a really smart So you're people. hiring. <laughs> yeah, hiring, you know, all across the board, but particularly um, on the data science side, you know, people that you know, have experience in machine learning and so on and so forth. We really want to have that kind of explosion uh, next year uh, and, th- and the rest of this year uh, and start to kind of um, look at what the future of data looks like you know, not just for Af- um, Nigeria and, and Okra here, but as we grow in, you know, different different parts of the continent as well. Nice. Well, you know, I may know a few data scientists. I may be able to, uh, you know, refer a few your way. Well, Farah, thank you so, so much for this conversation. It was really fascinating. If anybody wants to learn more about you or about uh, Okra, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me on uh, LinkedIn. So just Farah Ashira Jatubo um, and also okra.ng. 
Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>